Hi, and welcome to episode three of Inspector Rabbit. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Daniel DeHotman and Dr. Jesse Schnolls, who recently wrote a report with the Adam Smith Institute in the UK about the medicinal use of psilocybin and reducing restrictions on treatment and research. Dr. Jesse Schnoll is a medical doctor who studied at Monash University. He has interests in communicable diseases, antimicrobial resistance and health policy, he studied ethics at the University of Oxford and interned with the World Health Organization's office at the United Nations in New York. He has written for Developing World Bioethics, The Herald Sun and the Australian Medical Students Association. Dr. Daniel DeHotman graduated from Monash University with a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor of Surgery. Also on his long list of achievements is a Bachelor of Medical Science from the University of Oxford, a Boston Consulting Group scholarship for his exceptional academic results and experience as an expedition medic and experience as an expedition medic on a 2017 trek across Antarctica to the South Pole. Dr. Daniel DeHotman is just one of nine recipients in Australia to be awarded a prestigious 2019 Rhodes Scholarship to study at Oxford University. These two young lads and very passionate doctors were an absolute delight to have on the show and I think you'll really enjoy this episode. So let's begin. I invite you down the rabbit hole. Come with your opinions, come with your doubts, but above all, come with curiosity, for this is an idea to which someone has dedicated their life. I'm your host, Pepper. Welcome to Inspector Rabbit. the podcast today i've got i'm sitting here e-sitting here with <laughs> daniel de hotman and jesse schnall welcome to the podcast and thank you for taking the time out of your day to come and have a chat with me thank you for great having us yeah yeah thank great you. to be involved daniel and jesse can you tell me a little bit about your background daniel you want to go first sure uh thanks jesse so my name's daniel and i was born originally in south africa uh, but came over to Australia when I was eight years old and grew up in far north Queensland in Cairns, which is a beautiful place to grow up, although very hot. Uh, and then went as far as uh, I went, went quite a far away uh, for university down to Melbourne to Monash University for med school, where I met Jesse. And so I studied there for five years. And after the end of my second year, I took a year off to do bioethics and public policy over at Oxford as part of a research program that Monash holds um, and a relationship with Oxford. And that was a really fantastic experience, which made me much more interested in areas outside of medicine um, than I was previously, particularly in the ethical landscape. Um, and that's a common theme, I think, of what we'll talk about today, but also interested in the ways that you can try and make society better through better public policy. 
And so following that, I had a few experiences um, that I tried to, tried to throw myself into to get different lenses on that approach. So working in the private sector, um, in management consulting over in Sweden, looking to improve um, the whole system from above, from a business standpoint, um, writing policy papers for the various medical student societies, and then also working, working at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet in Canberra on a suicide prevention project, um, which was an interest of the Prime Ministers at the time. And perhaps more broadly and related to, to this talk today, I've had a long interest in drug policy ever since my first few years in medical school, where I felt like there was a mismatch in terms of the way that society deals with drugs and particularly the way that the, the policymakers deal with drugs and then their medical um, effects and particularly in relation to the potential for them to relieve suffering and help people and so uh, it's been really gratifying to work on the project with Jesse um, in terms of looking at some of the medical uses of these drugs that are emerging in the research and also um, trying to encourage policymakers to think a bit more in a more evidence-based way about how they can be used to help people. Tough act to follow. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a medical doctor, uh, currently working in my first year as a medical doctor here in Melbourne. Um, I also grew up here, so I've been in the one place my whole life, more or less. In terms of, yeah, how Dan and I met, so we did meet at uni in medical school. Um, we actually met uh, working on a student-run uh, online health journalism website called The Doctor's Project. Um, and that's sort of, I guess, where our interests kind of co-aligned in terms of both being very interested in public health. And so that's something that's really informed what I've done as a student and now, you know, as a junior doctor, um, also taking some time off to do some research overseas in a few different areas, uh, bioethics, um, at the moment, a lot of infectious diseases research, which is potentially the area that I hope to go into as a doctor, um, but also policy and obviously the psilocybin paper that we've just put out with the Adam Smith Institute. Uh, and so I think, you know, for me, um, personally and, and also very much professionally, the key thing that ties that all together is wanting to do something useful for the public. Uh, and in medicine, you can do that at a very interpersonal level, one-on-one -on -one as a doctor, which is obviously critically important, but you can also do it at a public policy level in terms of public health. Um, and then secondly, wanting to do that in a way that focuses on the evidence and things that work and where can we make uh, sort of really high yield decisions that can be easily impactful because we're currently uh, delaying what we could do based on poor evidence or poor reasoning. Um, and so I think that ties in really nicely to the topic that we'll hopefully be talking a lot about today, uh, which is very close to me because it seems like something we could do to really help a lot of people um, and where we are starting to get some really good evidence. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Great, thank you for the introductions. So let's move now to the paper that you both recently put out. Can you tell me a bit about it? What's it all about? Jesse, do you want to lead in and I can jump sure. in afterwards? Yeah, so the paper that we've put out, um, the medicinal use of psilocybin is, uh, to be specific, I guess a report rather than a research paper. Um, and I guess research would, you know, in my mind entail original evidence. Uh, whereas what we've done is, basically compiled a wide body of evidence on uh, the growing use, potential use of psilocybin, which is the uh, active ingredient in what it's traditionally known as magic mushrooms, um, as a treatment for a range of mental illnesses. And we'll talk a bit more about those illnesses, I guess, later on. Um, yep, go for it. Can you just tell me, for the listeners out there, how psilocybin acts in the body and why this might be effective? Yeah. For yeah, treatment of mental health issues. Absolutely. So 
we're starting to learn, I mean, we can talk a bit more about sort of the history of psilocybin research and what it does, but there've been a few, a few studies put out um, by Imperial College London in the UK, which is one of sort of the leading centres for psilocybin research in this field, uh, that looked at the way that psilocybin acts in the brain. And they used fMRI studies, which is basically an MRI scanner, which is a scanner you can use to look at parts of the body. Um, and they monitor blood flow to different parts of the brain when people are under the influence of psilocybin. Uh, and there are a few different things that it appears to do. I don't think we know exactly how it works, but we have some good ideas. The first is that it decreases connectivity in certain networks in the brain that are traditionally associated with depressive states and anxious states, one of which is called the default mode network. Um, and that's sort of a part of your brain where a lot of people um, sort of store ego and it's involved in rumination and thinking about yourself and obsessing over things going on in your life and tends to be quite overacted in depressive and anxious states. Um, and so psilocybin seems to reduce the brain activity in that area. So that's one way. And the second is that it appears to actually increase connection between other parts of the brain. And so the working theory, as I best understand it, I'm definitely not an expert in this area, um, is that those two things sort of seem to free people from the ruminative uh, depressive states that characterize depression and anxiety uh, and allow them to be a bit more open uh, and that when you're going through psychotherapy, which is, you know, where we're seeing psilocybin being applied in a controlled setting with a guide, with a therapist, that allows you to get out of those states a bit more easily and sort of change how you're thinking and feeling. So that's a, that's my best effort at uh, explaining what is a fairly, you know, complex thing, but that's what we seem to know so far based on the current mm. research. That's yeah. great. So in your report, you've compiled all of this research. Is that right? Yeah. So the way, so, so essentially what the report was, was a report we put out in the United Kingdom with a think tank called the Adam Smith Institute um, and another group, um, the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group, uh, who's sort of leading the charge in the UK to try and change the status of psilocybin. And our central argument was that we believe that based on the evidence that exists that the UK should reschedule psilocybin. So, you know, drugs are put into lots of different schedules that determine their legal status and the criminality associated with their use. And we're talking specifically about medical use that we thought psilocybin should be moved from schedule uh, one, which is the most restrictive schedule to schedule two. And that that would better enable uh, the researchers working in the UK to conduct more studies uh, on this drug uh, in a therapeutic context. Uh, and to get further towards the sort of late stage trials, like phase three trials, and evidence that we need to potentially get it approved as a treatment. Um, and so what we did was we looked at sort of the history of psilocybin uh, in mental health research, the ways that it acts, the potential benefits and potential cons, um, the current studies and trials that are going on, and then why the scheduling of psilocybin, the drug scheduling status is critical to enabling research and potentially treatment. And then what pathways there might be in the UK to change that scheduling status. Um, and then our report, you know, we co-authored that with a few, uh, several other people, including Dr. James Rucker, who's uh, one of the leading psychiatrists in the UK conducting trials in this area. Um, and that was put out a few months ago and covered by a few leading newspapers and Sky News in the UK. Um, and has actually formed the basis of a push uh, that uh, Kit Malthouse um, is now reviewing, and he's one of the he's the Minister for Justice in the UK um, to consider rescheduling it. Uh, and that's been led by Crispin Blunt, who's the head of the CDPIG and also a minister in the UK. So things are starting to hopefully move, which is exciting. Excellent. Worth noting, Pe Pepper, just for your 
just for your listeners. So the current scheduling that Jesse mentioned, and it's much the same here. The only difference is the numbers change. So it's schedule nine is the most restrictive. Um, but schedule one in the UK specifically says that these drugs have no medical use in no capacity and they cause a high degree of harm. And our argument was on both of those measures, the, the logic doesn't hold because they've been repeatedly shown to be safe. And the evidence for that is extremely strong. And then there's emerging evidence that they may actually have quite significant benefits, although that still requires late stage trials. And what we're trying to do with the rescheduling is to recognize that emerging evidence and then make it easier for more researchers to conduct those trials um, in a more economically sustainable way. Because when you have a high level of scheduling, schedule one, it's extremely expensive to do the trials. You require lots of special security protocols and it essentially disincentivizes any researchers from well, there are still researchers doing it, but it disincentivizes a lot of other researchers from really pushing the science forward. And we thought that was regressive and unnecessary. So can you explain to me what stage one, two, and three trials are? I'm not really familiar with the different stages. Yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to feel that one. Um, so essentially when a new drug or vaccine or anything else, and there's a lot of talk about it with COVID at the moment, different vaccines and different stages, is brought to market and approved for therapeutic use, it goes through several different phases or stages on the, on the way from getting to, you know, a new molecule uh, to an approved medicine or treatment. So phase zero or preclinical trials tend to be things like animal studies uh, where we just test the basic safety of the drug and the doses at which it might be toxic and get a better idea of how it might work. You then move into phase one trials, which are sort of very small scale trials, usually anywhere from, you know, 10 to 30 people. And that's mainly looking at, again, just baseline safety. Uh, what dosages can you give this at before you start to provoke potentially serious side effects? Phase two is where you begin to start looking at, at effectiveness. Um, and you can split phase two into 2A and 2B. But that tends to be slightly larger trials, anywhere from you know, 30 or 40 to 100, 200 people. Um, and again, trying to determine now what dose would this be most appropriate at? So testing different dosages of the potential treatment and then starting to look at early data on, is it effective? Do we actually see a benefit from this medication? And again, at every stage you need to progress through if the results are good. And phase three is sort of the, you know, the typical final stage where you have a larger group of people, anywhere from a few hundred to thousands, depending on the medication. Uh, and if you pass phase three trials and it shows effectiveness and safety, then it can be scheduled or rather licensed for use. Um, and then you have phase four trials, which are sort of post licensing, which looks at the drug in the community to see if there've been any new information that's come to light after it's been approved. So that's more or less how it works yeah. um, for most medications. Great. Okay. And what's, so at the moment in the UK, what stage are they at? So with psilocybin, they're currently, and, and, and it's being conducted uh, in several countries. So the main company, and often it is private companies that lead these processes because they're very expensive. Sometimes you do have governments and, you know, public institutes running them as well. But at the moment, it's a company called Compass Pathways Limited, and they're a British company. They're currently in phase 2B trials. And that was held up a little bit with COVID, um, but I believe they're now back running. Uh, there's some preliminary data, which is quite promising, um, but I believe they're expected to finalise that and then publish their finished data sometime next year. Uh, and they're also now currently in the process of raising funding. I think they've raised about 80 million uh, US dollars at the moment, 
uh, for phase three studies, which gives you an idea of sort of the scale and the cost mm. of, of running these things and, you know, why you do need significant investment and backing to, to get them off the ground. Uh, so it's phase two being. It's worth, yeah. it's worth emphasizing as well for your listeners. So the way that, as Jesse's alluded to, when you have a new drug that a pharmaceutical company typically develops or a researcher, they'll put a patent out on that drug and that patent gives them ex exclusive rights for a period of time, which varies depending on where you are, to manufacture it and no one else can copy your drug. And that allows you to recoup the cost of the drug. And then later, once the patent expires, it will become extremely cheap. But with a lot of these drugs like MDMA and psilocybin, psilocybin is a natural therapy. MDMA um, was invented you know, over 50 years ago now. And so there's no ability for major pharmaceutical companies in particular to patent them and to recoup the profits in the same way. And so a lot of this is being driven by philanthropists and people who are, have a special interest in these drugs um, being becoming available to re relieve suffering. And also I think Compass is, is trying to develop a, um, a novel method of delivery that they can patent in particular. And that's where they see commercial potential. But up until you know three or four or five years ago, it was very difficult to raise the money necessary to conduct the trials at all. And it's only been as the initial studies came out and that's due to the, you know, just very bluntly, the heroic work and perseverance of a number of scientists, you know, like James Rucker, who was on our paper to push the science forward yeah. and um, provide a pathway and confidence for investors and philanthropists to put the money, their money forward to make it happen. So I think that's worth noting, you know, Jesse and I, um, through this process, we've been very fortunate to, to speak with people like James Rucker, and he's been working on this for decades now. Um, and, you know, it's just a special time in history where there's a lot of momentum behind these drugs and a lot of momentum behind the research. And I think we're in a, in a, in a window now where um, the Overton window um, or this, this concept of like what's politically feasible or possible is changing. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's a really exciting process. Um, I think that's best exemplified by in the US um, which has obviously been one of the, the greatest defenders of the war on drugs in a very um, and criminalizing drug use and drug production for a long time. And they've spent tens of billions of dollars trying to advance that mission um, as a result of pressure, uh, predominantly, interestingly, from the Defense Department, because uh, some of these drugs have been shown to be effective for treating veterans with PTSD and anxiety. Um, both psilocybin and MDMA now have breakthrough status, which is essentially a way to fast track that approval process. Um, and that's a really uh, amazing thing given and demonstrates how far we've come. Absolutely. And you're right saying that the US has been leading the war on drugs. And I want to, I want to have a chat about the, the history of psilocybin because the time now is such an interesting time politically and just in the world with COVID. And I've noticed that there's been a resurgence in the popularity of these drugs being pushed forward for medicinal use in the last sort of five to seven years. More people are talking about it. And just from my personal perspective, what I've seen is that a lot of people, perhaps the older generation, there's still a lot of stigma around the use of psilocybin. It's still linked to hippies and that kind of culture. And when it kind of got pushed out in the 60s with the war on drugs with Reagan, and now there's so many people talking about it and doctors like yourselves um, pushing to do research and to have these drugs rescheduled. So let's, let's have a chat about the history of it and how and why all of this is changing now. Yeah, this is a this is a very nerd buff uh, area of interest <laughs> of mine, yeah. and it's and it's actually sort of where we started when we began mm. writing this report, um, because neither of us were you know uh, working in this field or esteemed experts on the issue uh, before we began writing it. So I can take you through sort of psilocybin and psychedelics and also MDMA, which have slightly different um, historical timelines. 
So essentially psilocybin, again, you know, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms or psychedelic mushrooms, that was used for thousands of years, um, I think mostly by Native American groups uh, in North and South America. Um, it was first synthesized, so the actual chemical from the mushroom, uh, by Sandoz, by a, a pharmacist or a scientist called Albert Hoffman, who's very famous in the world of psychedelic drugs. He's also the person who first synthesized LSD. Uh, and that was in the 1950s. Um, and so following that, LSD being synthesized in the 1930s, you then had those drugs, which were not yet illegal and not yet scheduled because they were novel, um, move into both public use and culture in sort of the 60s and that way uh, that we know them from. And also into a lot of research studies that began in the field of mental health in the 60s and 50s. Um, and that was at a stage where they weren't yet really legislated for. What you then had with that growing use and sort of the association between those drugs and the countercultural movement of the 60s and 70s was a response from governments, uh, primarily initially the US government, um, which controlled these medications in about 1970, 1971, under the Controlled Substances Act. And that's when they became both illegal and significantly harder to conduct research with. And so there was a big lull for probably 20 to 30 years until research sort of began to pick up again in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, and has been gradually gaining steam up until now. So we are kind of in the second wave uh, really of research with these medicines and we're building on a lot of the, uh, I shouldn't say we, I'm not conducting the research, but you know, the amazing, the amazing scientists and doctors who are conducting the research are building on the work done by those who came before them 50 or 60 years ago. So that's sort of the timeline with, psilocybin um and that's still under a schedule one status you know in in almost every country as far as i know and by the un so those laws from the 70s have lingered uh we're kind of living with the with the relics of those decisions made many years ago uh in terms of mdma that was synthesized in i think 1913 somewhere in that period um that's early. As well yeah early right i think as well by sandoz um, and that actually remained legal for quite a long time. So there was a lot of uh, research and recreational use of a very similar drug called MDA um, throughout the sort of mid 1900s, which was eventually controlled. And then MDMA sort of came in as a substitute for that. Um, and it wasn't until it began to be widely associated with sort of the party rave scene in the 1980s that it was eventually scheduled uh, under Schedule One in 1985, I think in the US. So a bit later, and then again, the same thing, a lull in sort of research, which has now researched. Uh, and so that's how we got to where we are now, I guess. Okay. Just to um, a bit, oh, sorry. sorry, Pepper. Just to provide a bit of color as well um, to what Jesse said, um, you know, a lot of the history of these drugs, they were being used by psychologists as Jesse alluded to, and, mm -hmm. and really were embraced as this breakthrough therapy that was gonna change the game in psychology. And you had psychologists writing to each other and sending the drugs to each other and demonstrating how they could help patients and, you know, writing case reports of the amazing results. But the way, the reasons why that it was actually criminalized, it wasn't due to that. It was due to the rave scene and, and really the, the counterculture of the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. um, as you alluded to, Pepper. But that was really a political decision. And that is really worth underlying. Um, you know, Nixon and, and his advisors saw this as a way to... Um, as a way to push back against the left. And it really became a proxy for a lot of um, cultural battles in the US, particularly over the Vietnam War and otherwise. But 
the use that was happening in the counterculture and in the rave scene was distinct as to what was happening amongst registered psychologists and mental health professionals. And I think that's worth emphasizing. A lot of people we talk to, they say, so does this mean we want magic mushrooms sold in a corner store to children? And that's simply not the case. We're talking about a very controlled use in a medical setting of a drug that has powerful effects. And the, all we're asking for is the ability to do research on them. That's all. It's a very simple argument. And that's the one, that's the, that limited argument is what we were trying to make in the paper. I mean, from a personal perspective, I can't speak for Jesse. I think there may be an argument for reducing you know, criminal prosecutions, for example, for some softer drugs like psilocybin, but that's a different debate. This debate is simply about giving people access to medications that can help relieve suffering and help treat really um, debilitating mental illnesses. Absolutely. And I think that's absolutely key in, you know, emphasizing that point is that you're not advocating for the recreational use of these medicines. You just want the ability to do the research, get the funding that you need so that you can go forth and help people in mental health treatment. And I think that's a common misunderstanding that a lot of people have because they do think of the counterculture. Mm. Um, I'm also interested in the, the history of use and criminalization in Australia and how, how it became illegal in Australia. And I'm actually less, I mean, I think both of us are probably more in terms of the history uh, of, of criminalization, probably more keyed into the UK situation mm. and the US because that's primarily what we drew on uh, in our report. Um, to my knowledge, the timelines are fairly similar uh, in Australia as they were in the UK and the US and the scheduling is, is also quite the same. As Daniel explained, you know, we have it here in Schedule 9 of the Poison Standard, which is the most restrictive um, in which MDMA and psilocybin are both categorised. So mm. in terms of the legal status and the scheduling, they really are much the same. And yeah, my knowledge is that the timelines are fairly similar, but I'm not, a, I'm not as, as knowledgeable on that as I am about the UK side of things. That's okay. I, I I think Sorry, yeah, that's okay. I, sorry, I think there might be a bit of lag. Um, Jesse's right, and um, from my understanding, and I could be wrong, but it's because we sign up to various US convention, uh, UN conventions, which were driven by the US, hence why I mentioned that, um, to, against the, the use, the illegal use of drugs. Uh, and that is fairly consistent around the world. And what is so groundbreaking about what is being considered in the UK is if it did get passed, it would be the first country to change the scheduling away from what the UN convention is. Um, just for your listeners as well, and some interesting analogies, I mean, we're getting quite technical in parts of this discussion. So in Australia, to, to frame it in the Australian context, psilocybin and MDMA are schedule nine. So no medical use, lots of harm. Cocaine is schedule eight. And that means that cocaine is less restricted than these drugs. And the reason for that is because it's used in some forms of ENT surgery. So in the ear, nose and throat, because it's quite a good, it's quite good at controlling blood flow in those areas. But obviously cocaine has enormous social harms, right? Um, as well as causing huge amounts of addiction, neither of which uh, could, could be reasonably asserted to the same extent to MDMA and psilocybin. So I think that analogy is a good way to demonstrate the inconsistency in the current scheduling and regulation in Australia. But interestingly, this is currently up for debate and we may get to this later, but um, the Therapeutic um, Goods Administration, the TGA, is currently considering submissions to, to change the scheduling of psilocybin, MDMA, and, and some other drugs as well from Schedule 9 to Schedule 8. So um, that's something that various groups, including Mind Medicine Australia, who Jesse and I um, are, are involved with, um, and others are, are looking to, um, to advocate on, and, and hopefully we can see some policy change in this space. 
Absolutely. From what I understand, the TGA had it open for submissions from the public in September and they closed at the end of September and they were considering rescheduling it from a Schedule 9 to a Schedule 8 drug and I think the decision comes out in February. Is that right? So I think an interim decision comes out in February and then, and um, definitely correct me if I'm wrong and we can double check, a final decision comes out shortly afterwards. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the time period for putting in sort of public comments has just closed, as you said. Um, and yeah, as Daniel mentioned, Mind Medicine Australia have been really leading the charge here in terms of rescheduling. Um, so that's been an amazing effort by them uh, to even get this matter to be considered uh, and discussed. Mm. And I think a really good sign of the times of how things are changing, something that mm. probably wouldn't have been feasible even five years ago. Absolutely. And Mind Medicine Australia seems to be leading the charge here and they've done some excellent work. And I'm actually interviewing uh, Tanya next week. Oh, great. I don't want to take away too much from, from her talk, but for those who haven't heard of Mind Medicine Australia, uh, are either of you just able to give me a quick overview of what they're doing uh, for, the, for advocating for the medicinal use of psilocybin and MDMA in Australia? Yeah, so Dan, do you want to take that or...? Yeah, sure. I can, I can talk broadly and I, I won't take too much about, uh, away from Tanya, but broadly Mind Medicine Australia is a, a nonprofit that works to promote evidence-based research, discussion and policymaking around the use of um, specific drugs um, that are illegal, like psilocybin and MDMA, to, pr to try and provide greater access to patients who need them. Um, and that obviously takes multiple um, multiple ways of advocacy. So that might be public education and they frequently hold events and films during normal times that aren't COVID where they promote uh, you know, knowledge dispersion of some of, the, some of the ideas we're talking about today. Um, talking with policymakers and trying to educate them on, on the latest research, mobilizing members of the medical community, both within Australia and overseas um, to, to build that public support once again. And then also more specific policy advocacy like this regulatory change and, uh, you know, as Jesse said, this is a really unique period in time. And I think for a lot of groups, including Mind Medicine Australia, um, who've been fighting for these changes for so long, just mm -hmm. the fact that the TGA is considering it is a significant win. Because in that concept I talked about earlier, the Overton's window, I mean, if you talked about this issue five years ago, you would have been shunned as a, um, you know, probably committed to a mental asylum um, almost, or, or perhaps disadvantaged in the workplace. Uh, because people would be questioning whether you're completely with it. And now we're normalizing the discussion. I think that's really important. And, you know, even for Jesse and I, um, to be really frank, uh, you know, we both, we both hope to have you know, successful careers. Um, and we thought long and hard about how we position ourselves um, with this document, because we wanted, to be, we wanted to be clear in our principles and follow the evidence. But also, this is an issue that has a lot of stigma surrounding it. But ultimately, when we thought about the outcome and the fact that if we can provide better access to these drugs for patients, huge numbers of people will benefit and huge amounts of suffering will be reduced. And ultimately we, and I can't, I, I'm sure Jesse would echo these sentiments. We think it's really important that this discussion is led by science and not by stigma. Absolutely. And there is still so much stigma that I'm sure that as, as we go through these processes all around the world that will um, hopefully be broken down. But as, as you know, it is a, it is a long process uh, to change the discourse in society. So perhaps to, to assist breaking down the stigma, why don't we have a chat about the pros and cons that the, you have just have published in your report, but also the pros and cons that both of you know as 
doctors and people who are well read into the research? Yeah, so we can speak to, I guess, what the most recent evidence we have is for both psilocybin and MDMA. And I guess I should probably say psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy uh, and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, because that's actually what's been studied. What does that mean, assisted psychotherapy? Yeah, it's it's the difference between saying... So, for example, with, with current treatments for depression and anxiety, you might give someone... Uh, what's called an SSRI or more commonly known as an antidepressant. Um, and they would take that every day as a tablet at home. They might also engage in therapy privately or with a therapist, but they don't have to. And so to, to produce evidence on that, you'd really be looking at just the effect of the medication. The difference with uh, psilocybin and MDMA in the way that they're currently being studied in these trials is that they're given in conjunction with psychotherapy. So in a supported environment with a therapist there, um, to guide you through that experience. And so they're more facilitating the work of the therapy rather than just producing a result uh, pharmacologically on their own. So I think it is a really critical distinction because part of what people might be, might be hesitant about is, oh, you're just going to give people these, you know, very fairly quite powerful medications and leave them to their own devices. Uh, and that's absolutely not the intention and not the way that they've been studied so far. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's one distinction. Um, in terms of the evidence, so I think key to stress that we're yet to get the final results from phase three studies with both of these treatments. And those really are what we need to, to firmly say it works, this is how much it works, and these are the potential risks and side effects. Um, but we do have some really good data from the earlier phase two studies. With psilocybin, we're talking about something like up to an 80% remission in severe depression or anxiety um, at up to six wow. months, which is mm. significant compared to what you would see with standard first-line therapies, which would be a fair bit lower than that. Uh, with MDMA, which is primarily used for PTSD, and I'm just talking about the major two indications mm. of these two medications, um, we're looking at things like two-thirds of people with PTSD no longer meeting the criteria for that diagnosis. Uh, I believe it was about six months after treatment. Um, and something like, you know, 55% uh, having remission earlier on compared to around 25% with the placebo. So it, it's fairly significant results. Um, and it is worth mentioning that these drugs are being studied for use in quite a specific context. So psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, for example, we're primarily looking at it now in terms of the nearest indication that we could see for treatment-resistant depression. So that's people who've tried two first-line therapies, so you know, an SSRI or antidepressant would be a good example of that, and have failed to get the result that they want. It's not going to be a panacea for everyone with a mood disturbance, and it's not necessarily going to be the most appropriate option either. Um, so it's good to keep in mind what specific indications we're talking about when we discuss the evidence, I suppose. Those are some very promising results though. 80%. Mm. I, I don't think yeah. so, yeah, so... in mental health um, since, you know, since antidepressants have been introduced and other first line treatments, I don't think they've mm. seen the same sort of results over mm. a period of 50 or 60 years. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's compared to what we have. It's, it's very impressive. And again, we should stress that, you know, they're, they're not yet phase three studies, so they are still relatively preliminary results. But, you know, our central argument was that 
the results are clearly promising enough to warrant the phase three studies and the further research and that the current scheduling, while those things can still happen, makes them far harder to conduct. Um, and conversely, which is often even the more important question, the evidence on their harms and side effects, and we can talk about that too, yeah. is extremely promising. Um, they have very, very favorable side effect profiles compared to a lot of other medications and an extremely low rate of serious adverse events, um, which is you know, often the first, the first hurdle to get over when you're considering yeah. a new therapy. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about that. What are the side effects? What are the pros? What are the cons? Yeah. So, Dan, you can jump in if you want, or I can, I can feel if, if you, you go for it. I've got a couple of other bits, but you go for it. No mm. worries. So mm. psilocybin first. So I guess the most important thing to look at is what are called serious adverse events. Um, and that has a strict definition, but generally it involves things that would require hospitalization or emergency treatment. Um, and a few other different criteria, which, which might not be relevant here. Um, with, with psilocybin, to my knowledge, there were almost no or possibly no recorded serious adverse events in clinical trials up until very recently, where there's been two, I think, reported serious adverse events in the current phase 2B trials being conducted by Compass. Um, that's just based on media reports that I've read, not personal knowledge. Uh, one of those was a person who developed adjustment disorder, which is a, a diagnosis that can occur following a really difficult or traumatic experience. Uh, and the other, I believe, was a person who um, experienced suicidal thoughts. Um, both of those, I believe, were managed. Uh, but those are the first two recorded incidents in, you know, uh, many different trials involving a lot of people. Uh, mm. With MDMA, it's, it's a similar story. In fact, arguably slightly better. Um, I believe there are none or possibly one, I would need to double check, recorded serious adverse events in over a thousand people who've been studied uh, in the past 10 to 15 years. So that's, that's the first hurdle is, does anything really bad happen? Um, and the evidence seems to be that the rates of that are extremely low, bordering on, bordering on zero, um, which is fantastic. In terms of non-serious adverse reactions, so I guess you would divide them into physical, oh, go for it. What sort of dosage are you talking about here for these people in the clinical trials? Yeah, so with psilocybin, they're typically, you're typically looking at one to two experiences or one to two sessions of therapy. Um, and often they're spread out over a period of, of months. Um, and it's the same with MDMA. And they are pretty mild, not pretty mild. They're tested at a range of different doses, but they're not they're not extremely high doses. They're, they're doses that would be considered sort of quite moderate um, to enable facilitation of the therapy. Uh, and so we do see a bit of a response with different dosages, but again, they're relatively, um, they're not significantly high amounts of, of those therapies. Are we yeah. talking in milligrams or grams? Yeah, we're, we're typically talking in milligrams. We can have a look if you want. I don't remember them off the exact top oh, of my okay. head. No. But, um, but we can, we can certainly have a look. Yeah, for MDMA, it's about 100 milligrams or thereabouts, and it might be slightly lower for some patients and slightly higher for others. And I can't recall the exact amount for psilocybin. Okay. Um, but if I could add a couple of points to what Jesse was saying, uh, you know, we're talking a lot about statistics, but I think it's worth remembering the types of people that are being you know, treated with these drugs. So in the case of PTSD, for example, uh, the existing therapies help about a third of people. A third of people... Um, 
do don't receive any don't get any help essentially and are just maintained on the current on the current um, symptoms they experience and a third get worse from where they are so you know the the current stats are not are not great for what we have and the ability to to achieve like majority rem remission amongst these patients is really spectacular and and if you think about patients with PTSD you know one of the compelling cases that we talked about particularly to a more conservative audience in the UK but this is also an argument that's cutting through in the US, as I alluded to, is that of former service people. So people who've served in Afghanistan or Iraq, first responders like police, fire people, um, ambulance workers who you know, have really traumatic experiences that they've, that they've gone through, through and, and they've done it through, for, for really society to try and give back to the community. And the argument that we put forward to policymakers is these people gave back and served the community. And so now we have a moral responsibility to help them. And, and the results are really spectacular. I mean, if I may just read out this quote sure. um, from, from, our, from, our, uh, from our paper, it was by a clinical trial tra uh, participant. So this is a quote. Um, there were times in the whole experience where I felt like I was being purged of self-doubt, guilt, and was being shown ways of handling all that was bringing me down. It was like having the best therapist in the world inside your mind, but all the answers were within. I cried at times, I laughed, and afterwards felt totally moved by it all. My doctor was amazed also. I didn't want any more antidepressants, nor have I taken any in five years. It is beyond ridiculous to think that this drug has, has no medicinal benefit or that it causes harm. It is the polar opposite of that. It saddens me that others who have also battled with or are still battling with depression can't benefit from this. It changed my life totally and it has done so for others. It needs to be available soon. And I think those touching emotional experiences are important to talk about because Often doctors and scientists get stuck in the statistics, but yeah. really there's a human face of all this suffering. And those people, if we don't change these regulations, won't have access to these drugs. Mm, absolutely. And it's really important to protect the mental health of those who are giving back and those in wider society. And I think you're right. We do have a moral responsibility to ensure that those who are on the front line are looked after. Can you tell me about the risk of drug dependence and bad trips? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, concerns about um, addiction, overdose, dependence, and bad trips in particular with psilocybin tend to be among like the biggest fears that people have about, about these drugs. Um, and a lot of that is because of, you know, how few people have actually been exposed to them uh, in their own lives. Uh, and also because of the stigma surrounding their use, both historically and still now, part of that is, again, to do with their criminal status. So again, I'll separate them um, and speak to them individually. So psilocybin is actually one of the most remarkably physically safe drugs uh, that exist. The risk of actual overdose, so taking too much of a drug that ends up killing you or resulting in you needing treatment from a, from a physical perspective is virtually nil purely because the dosage of the drug that you would need to ingest for that to happen is so far in excess of what would be used in a trial uh, or even what's used recreationally that it's really just not a risk factor. Um, in terms of things like addiction and abuse, we know from so many studies, both again of surveys of people who've used it recreationally and from clinical trials, that these really are not habit-forming drugs. People do not use psilocybin uh, whether in a trial or as a treatment or just recreationally, and then come back the next day and want to do it again and do more and more of it to the point where it takes over their lives. It's just not a feature of, of, these, of these drugs, which is fantastic. Likewise, the risk of diversion, uh, and that means basically people 
getting these therapies or drugs in a research context and then taking them, you know, into the street or into their personal lives has, again, it's extremely low. All, all the evidence suggests that it is, that is really uncommon. Uh, and obviously part of that is because they are not traditionally addictive and habit forming. And another part is because they're only administered in a really controlled setting. Uh, you don't go to your chemist and get a pack of 10 psilocybin pills and go home. You go to a session and a therapist administers it to you. Um, so there's really not an opportunity for that to occur. And then in terms of in terms of MDMA, that's broadly true as well. So again, typically not very toxic. Um, there was concern in the past about neurotoxicity, so damage to the brain resulting from MDMA use. That has been recorded in animals. But again, it tends to be at dosages that are well in excess uh, of what we would be using in, or what uh, trials would be using, I shouldn't say we, uh, or what would be used in a medical setting. Same goes with risks of uh, overdose and addiction and dependence. It's, it's really not something that's been observed in clinical trials. And, and in the community, uh, the way in which you know, MDMA is used, either as ecstasy or as other forms of recreational drugs, doesn't tend to be associated with dependence so much as, you know, the traditionally dependent drugs like heroin uh, or amphetamines. You certainly can have, particularly with MDMA, more adverse physical reactions. And there is something called serotonin syndrome, which does occur when people take far too much MDMA recreationally. But a lot of that is associated with the way in which these drugs are used recreationally, as well as things like dehydration and other risks. Uh, which is associated with sort of the rave setting uh, or taking too much. And those really are not features that we see in clinical trials. Um, so I think th those two things are really, really important for people to know um, because these drugs are really exceptionally safe and not drugs of abuse. And there was actually a quite thorough study done um, by Professor David Nutt, who's one of the leading experts in this space in the UK uh, several years ago, that looked at the, you know, the harms caused by 20 different common drugs um, and MDMA and psilocybin were both in the bottom five. Uh, alcohol and tobacco were significantly higher. I think alcohol may have been the highest. Mm. So that's, as far as that goes, I think that's critical for people to know. Now, in terms of bad trips, and this is really something specifically associated with psilocybin and other psychedelic drugs, um, that is a thing that can occur, particularly with recreational use. For people who haven't heard of that, it describes an experience with a psychedelic drug like psilocybin in which you have, you know, a very bad time. It can often be extremely distressing, anxiety provoking, sometimes to the point of requiring uh, medical assistance or, or people needing hospitalization. Now the incidence of people needing medical assistance or hospitalization, even in the community recreationally is really low in the therapeutic setting. It's far lower. And I would stress that, when those negative or difficult experiences do occur in the therapeutic setting, the overwhelming majority of research shows that they can be managed with simple techniques in which the supervisors are trained. So things like just talking, talking people down, comforting them, reorientating them in their environment. Um, very occasionally, anxiety, anxiolytic drugs can be used and that can be of assistance. Um, but really it's not something that is a major feature in the clinical trials. And that's kind of reflected in the minimal number of serious adverse events that we spoke about earlier. So certainly minor adverse events like, like moments of anxiety or stress do occur and that happens as well as minor physical adverse events like fast heartbeat or high blood pressure, those things can occur, but rarely do they extend to something serious. Um, so I think that that's, 
just a crucial factor for people to be aware of. And the last thing I would say about bad trips, which is not really relevant in the research context, and I wouldn't be translating this research over to the stuff that we've been discussing, is that, you know, there have been surveys done and there was one I think done with, I think about 2000 people in the past, uh, which was an online survey where psychedelic users in the, in the community were asked to describe their most difficult experience on a psychedelic drug. And I think it was over 80% of them reported that they found the experience while difficult, actually beneficial in the long run. They, they, they were happy that they'd had it. They found it useful. And so while a bad trip is a, is a scary thing and you wouldn't want it to occur, particularly in this recreational setting, it can still be constructive for people. That's not something that really relates that much to the research studies that we're talking about um, or to medical use, but I guess it is just something for people to be aware about. That's really good to know. And it's good that patients who will be using this in the trial and hopefully when it's approved um, in various different countries will have the assistance of a, a trained therapist to be able to guide their experience um, through any negativity that may surface that is separate to the trauma that they're attempting to deal with during that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it is we should say, a sort of condition and baked into the push uh, that My Medicine Australia and others have made for these drugs to be rescheduled to Schedule A in Australia. Um, it is a precondition of that, that they would only be administered in the therapeutic setting with the trained guide in a supported way with controlled, you know, um, substances manufactured in accordance with good manufacturing practice guidelines. Uh, and so it really is a very different kettle of fish from the sort of things people are worried about with recreational use, mm. um, which is an additionally really important thing that people should know about. Mm. Well, thank you for that. And it's probably important to note as well that there are different types of magic mushrooms, right? There are ones with psilocybin in them, but is, aren't there magic mushrooms as well that give you visual hallucinations? And are we... So that, so that psilocybin, yeah. So, so psilocybin is the active ingredient and when i say active ingredient that's sort of just a, a therapeutic term for the specific ingredient in a bigger thing um, that causes the effect that you're looking at so in magic mushrooms or psychedelic mushrooms the active ingredient is psilocybin that's the chemical that gives you the psychedelic experience mm. um, or the therapeutic experience and and that is responsible for the visual effects it's responsible for the all the other things that I spoke about in terms of the effects on the brain and the things that make it a useful therapeutic. And now those effects differ at different dosages mm. um, and certainly tend to correlate with the dosages. Uh, but that is the, that is the active substance that gives you the effects of the drug. Those are just like the five biggest things that people yeah. worry about. And I think all I mentioned was side effects, which is kind of part of it, but I think it's worth explicitly stating. Yeah. And with MDMA, like you can, die from serotonin syndrome but you need to take a lot and it's typically only something that occurs in like rave settings where you're dehydrated yeah. and you also don't know what's in the drug that you're taking as opposed to a therapeutic setting when people do talk about you know bad trips in the community or in recreational use a huge part of that is dependent on on what's traditionally called set and setting so your mindset coming into the situation um, and the external setting that you're surrounded with and what these mind-altering substances like, like psilocybin in particular, more so than MDMA do, is make you far more uh, vulnerable to being influenced by those things. Mm -hmm. And so again, the key thing to be aware of is that people coming into therapy, um, there's a lot of counseling that occurs before and after them, before and after, to get them into the right set. And something we definitely should mention 
is that people who are considered high risk are either of not responding well um, or perhaps of developing an adverse reaction in the long term are typically excluded from these studies uh, and actually would, would likely not be eligible to utilise the treatment. So there are a lot of mechanisms in place to limit those things um, and prevent them from occurring. And likewise with the setting, again, obviously there's a reason why uh, these trials occur in kind of a cosy house-like room with trained advisors who have a rapport with the patient. It's so that the external setting is as comfortable and safe and secure as possible to the person who's having the treatment rather than using it, you know, in the community, maybe under the influence of other substances at the same time, maybe with people that you don't know, or maybe in an unsafe way. And so everything is really built around making it as safe as possible. And it is just a totally different kettle of fish to talk about how these medicines are used in trials and how they would be given therapeutically versus things that have occurred in the community, where again, the risk of physical harm and abuse and addiction is also extremely low. Are there any trials going on with uh, veterans? Yeah, there's quite a lot in, in America. I'm not sure if there's any happening in Australia, but okay. the US military is really pushing things forward on the MDMA front. Um, I think they're somewhat involved in psilocybin, but because mm -hmm. psilocybin has broader range of uses outside of PTSD, it's not as much. But um, the US is funding really significant studies into, in, into MDMA um, for its use as PTSD. And I think that's part of what's driven MDMA forward in the US. And I think from what I've heard, uh, and I need to double check the stats, but um, they say that it could be available as soon as you know next year or 2022, um, depending on how the late stage trials go. So that gives you an indication of how fast things are moving. Yeah. Because the US has a really significant problem here. Like suicide is a massive issue amongst veterans. And mm. um, and I think uh, it's it's taken a crisis of you know literally at least every day seeing a veteran suicide for the Department of Defense to shake off its conservatism and, and say, we're going to investigate this therapy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And to lead on from that, so the most of the MDMA research, and they're currently in phase three studies, uh, and that's a multi-site study, so lots of different sites uh, in different parts of the world. Um, they're being led by an organisation called MAPS, which, which you or, or maybe some of your readers might have heard of, which has sort of led the way um, in a few different uh, studies of different psychedelic or, or other drugs, but primarily with MDMA um, for many years. So that phase three study is underway now um, and they've really been pushing that work forward uh, incredibly, um, which is fantastic to see. And while Dan's been talking, I've, I've had a review of the, of the dosage of psilocybin. So in that study that I mentioned um, where we saw the 60 to 80% improvement, the different doses they looked at were either a placebo, so effectively no psilocybin, just to see if there's any psychological effect from the, from the notion of taking a medication. Uh, or a, what, what they would call a high dose, which is 20 to 30 milligrams per 70 kilos. So sort of your average adult male. Um, so that's the sort of range that we're looking at from a therapeutic context. Great. Thanks for looking that up. No worries. Daniel, I want to, I'd like you to expand on what you were talking about with the regards to the experiences that patients are having when they're taking these medicines. We're not just talking about... Um, uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors talking about this other experience that i think for those who may not have had experiences with those kinds of medicines um, or been involved in the trials it, it can be very difficult to imagine what that would feel like and that quote that you read out how how can we explain this to people how can you kind of give them an idea of what the experience will be like and 
and how how can self-doubt just lift away how do these things happen from hmm. I, I guess like a perspective of what's happening in the brain but also how are these experiences um how are they experienced like it's, it's just it's mind-blowing to try and like comprehend this concept that all of these problems that people have been having whether it's ptsd depression it does sound it is a breakthrough drug as you've said but how mm. how is this <laughs> how does it work how does it how does it actually work what does, does it, it do work? yeah it's a great <laughs> question yeah well, I think we're, we're probably venturing more into philosophical territory um, <laughs> and experiential territory more than science, which is fine, but just noting that for the readers. I mean, you know, Jesse and I have looked into the evidence, but it's hard to have a scientific study on how guilt is, 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 uh, <laughs> is taken away from patients. Um, I mean, from what I've read, I think that, and, and I'm just talking off the cuff now, so Jesse, please feel free to contribute. No worries. I mean, people, people walk around, particularly in, in Western societies, and I think this is something that um, Eastern religions and Eastern societies are probably better at, to be frank. Um, there's a level of presence um, amongst people who, who practice some of these techniques, particularly things like meditation um, and mindfulness, which I think are getting greater bandwidth now in the West. Um, but in the West, I think we have you know, huge exposure to technology. We have a lot of stresses, despite people you know, being wealthier and healthier than ever before. We still have huge mental health problems, which is indicative of the amount of stress that people carry around with each other. And whether that's expectations about what life should be or anxieties about what life could be, I think taking a time to sit, step back, whether that be through some mindfulness training or whether it be through the, the use of some of these drugs, which seem to give people that greater level of perspective, I think it's a helpful way to, to take the high view on what you're experiencing and realize that that emotional state that you're in is perhaps not, it doesn't define one as a person. So I think that's just from what I've read, like some of the things that some of the things I've, I've heard about and particularly when you're when you're talking about I suppose everyday life particularly with mild depression or anxiety or just when people feel a bit stressed it's easier to do that with things like mindfulness but when you're talking about PTSD you've had a people have had a really um, traumatic experience which uh, you know you wouldn't wish on anyone and to to, 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 to to remove oneself from that I think is extremely difficult and it's shown we, we see that with the fact that really powerful antidepressants have quite poor effects. And so I think having that triggering um, event where you're able to take that step above and, and look down on yourself and think about what, are, what am I experiencing and then work with a professional psychologist who can, who can, um, who can work through those experiences with you. Um, and at least with PTSD, once again, now I'm talking more from my own personal knowledge rather than deep research or understanding. Um, psychologists often say that you can achieve through one session with MDMA and a person with PTSD, you can achieve the same level of progress as you might, as you might over five or six years, because mm. the level of emotional um, buy-in and relationship that you need with someone and the trust to be able to access really traumatic experiences, it's very high. And MDMA just reduces that bar. And so it gives you this really malleable state that you can then use for self, self-conceptualization and change, um, which you wouldn't necessarily be able to get to um, in the same period of time. Well, you wouldn't be able to get to in the same period of time. And for some people, you might never be able to get to it. Um, so that's my attempt at the slightly philosophical answer. Jesse, do you have anything to add? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think, I think that's, that's pretty much um, on the money. So again, I think really, really important um, in any discussion about, you know, drugs uh, and including psychedelic drugs to separate the two things from one another. So MDMA and psilocybin, they're both what we would call drugs or, th or therapies now. 
but they're actually quite different in terms of how they act and what they do. So mm. psilocybin, as you said, we spoke a bit earlier about the areas of the brain that that tends to work in, often networks that are overactive in depressive states that psilocybin can downregulate. And subjectively, what we see from reports, and I would encourage you know anyone who's, who's interested to, to look to our report where there are some patient reports or to have a look at the research where it does list those, um, what people tend to experience is a bit of a greater increase in connectivity to things around them, a bit of a dissolution of a sense of me and ego. Uh, and that can facilitate um, a removal out of those ruminating depressive states uh, and better enable research. So I think that's one way that psilocybin can work and there, and there are many different uh, ways that it can affect you. Um, with MDMA, it is, it's typically actually called an entheogen rather than a psychedelic. And what that term means is, or an empathogen. And what that term tends to mean is, is a drug that allows you to actually connect to others and empathize with them rather than something that really changes your uh, conscious state in the way that a classical psychedelic would. And so as Dan was saying, which I think is exactly what we see in, in the evidence and in the, in the studies and reports, what it does for people who've experienced trauma is that it makes their, ability to revisit that traumatic experience which is often you know the worst thing they've ever been through um, in a therapeutic context a lot more achievable so rather than a therapist trying to get you to go back to that so you can work through it and process it and talk about it and that just being impossibly difficult and terrifying mdma puts you in a state of mind where you can actually explore it and discuss it and work through it um, and the only other thing i would suggest in terms of this being a very powerful thing is that most of these studies or a lot of them do actually involve a lot of preparation uh, and a lot of follow-up afterwards. And so it's not a situation where people are coming in on day one, meeting their therapist for the first time, getting a <laughs> dose of MDMA and going into an eight hour therapy session. There are weeks or months of preparation of meetings, of discussions. The therapist builds rapport with the patient. They start to discuss their issues. They talk about what the experience on the medication will be like. So it really is, you know, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy mm. or psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Those drugs are a tool to get people into a space where they can work through their problems rather than a panacea for the problem. Um, and I just think that's really important for people to know so that they understand uh, how these things work. And that concludes part one of episode three. Tune in for part two of episode three on the 1st of December, 2020. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to think about supporting this podcast on Patreon. You will gain exclusive access to an episode that won't be released until next year. Head across to our Patreon page now and support the show. It would mean a lot to me if you did.